We've had a classic bear market setup here. You, all, I can give you five or six of the last ones. You have a break that's hard, pretty hard, like the first six months. Then you get a rally. And these rallies go anywhere from 10 to 18, 19, 20% sometimes. But then after that, you that's when you roll over in the damage. It doesn't come as a crash. It just starts working its way lower over a two, three, four quarter period. And I think that's where we are. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. Markets have been sinking after Fed Chair Jerome Powell's tough talk at Jackson Hole the other week. Getting inflation under control remains the Fed's top priority, and it's going to be a real challenge. It will require tough medicine that's going to require, quote, pain, to use Powell's own words. In rocky times like these, it helps to seek the counsel of advisors who have experienced many past market cycles. What are the lessons they've learned that may help us better navigate our wealth through what's to come? Which is why we're fortunate today to talk with money manager Ted Oakley, founder and managing partner of investment advisory firm Oxbow Advisors. Ted, thanks so much for joining us today. Adam, thanks for having me. Oh gosh, Ted, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, look, a number of questions for you, but let's start at the uh, the high level, like we always do. What's your current assessment of the global economy in today's financial markets? Well, you know, Adam, uh, what happens is, you know, obviously most of the world is in tough times and recession. I mean, if you look at all of Europe and then you look at Asia and various things, you, all of that's slowing down. There's a few spotty things, but by and large, it's all slowing down and the U.S. is slowing down, too. What I think's happened, though, is that people, we aren't far enough into it right now. So people uh, sort of still have this optimistic view that we're going to pop right out of it. And we don't see it that way. We see that continuing for probably another three or four quarters anyway. And it's sort of a classic bear market look to us. But it has to do with the economy. And more than anything, it has to do with the upcoming numbers that these public companies are going to have to throw out over the next two or three quarters. And they're going to have a hard time with comparisons. All right. So um, I guess let's 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 start with that last part first. So um, <clears throat> we've had record profit margins uh, coming into this year in, in corporations. Um, we obviously have a real inflation problem that's that's pushing input costs up. At the same time, you have the organic demand destruction of higher prices, right? Which higher prices mean people start spending less. You also have the Fed out there on top of that, trying to bring demand down through its own tightening measures, right? It's hiking rates. It's now starting quantitative tightening. So it's raising the cost of capital. Um, that's further squeezing corporations and consumer spending. Um, so those profit margins, which uh, I believe it's Jeremy Grantham who's looked at the data series and said they're one of the most mean reverting data sets out there. Um, it just seems like there's a preponderance of, of uh, logic that suggests that those profits are going to compress and just mathematically asset prices are going to have to come down. Is that the way you see it? Well, it is, Adam. You know, that 13.5% margin we had last year was the highest ever really, as far as I know. I mean, as far as the records we have. And so it could go, for us, it could go nowhere but down, and even at just a normal times. But now, all of a sudden, when you start really pushing down on consumers and they don't buy as much and that sort of thing, then it starts working its way into the companies and works its way into the profits. 
you know, and then it, and that's, it's sort of a step by step thing, but it's, we see it there. It looks like it's continuing to come on to us. All right. So we've got a slowing economy. We've got, uh, we, we've got the profits uh, situation, which of course stocks are supposed to be based as a, off of a multiple of earnings, right? So as profits shrink, earnings shrink, uh, stock prices should go down. Um, <clears throat> the slowing economy obviously doesn't help. Um, slower the economy goes, the slower earnings uh, or, or the worse earnings perform. Um, so things don't look all that great, but you you, you reference this sort of lingering optimism, right? Uh, that, uh, hey, you know, um, we're going to get back to, to to where things were, you know, at the start of the year, uh, hopefully at some point soon. And, and a lot of hike, a lot of hopes were placed on a Fed pivot, right? Which is that, yeah, even though the Federal Reserve's been talking tough this year and they've started hiking rates, we all know that the Fed has a glass jaw. Um, you know, Powell pivoted famously, you know, back in 2018. He'll do the same thing again. And <clears throat> when the um, CPI print uh, came down from uh, in July from the June high, um, I think there was sort of a, 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 a euphoria of that. Okay, so inflation's getting tamed, and therefore uh, the Fed's going to stop hiking sooner. Um, <clears throat> now, crazily, I don't know why you had that euphoria when the number, the CPI came down from 9.1 to 8.5. 8.5 is still a ridiculously bad inflation problem. Um, but, uh, but, but anyways, you know, we just mentioned J Jackson Hole, you know, I think Powell and, and the rest of the, the Fed executives have been out there saying, no, no, we're really serious. We're, we're, we're going to keep hiking from here. And the market is, is I think, beginning to wake up to the fact that uh, it wasn't taking the Fed at its word. And it now real, is now realizing it, it may start having to. Um, so giving all that context to say that sentiment is, is still really important in this game. And when you were on this program last, um, I think it was back in in March, in May, um, as the markets were approaching their lows for this year so far, you were saying, you know, a lot of people were asking, are we close to the bottom? And you were saying, well, if this is a bear market, you don't think it we are close to the bottom because you still saw a lot of people who were waiting to see if it was the bottom so they could buy back in. And if I recall, what you said is, if you're in a true bear market, by the time you're near the bottom, like nobody wants to touch a stock again. People have just completely given up on them. There's complete capitulation. Um, one, is that true? And, and if it is, it sounds like you don't see people close to a capitulation point sentiment-wise even still today. Is that correct? Well, that is, Adam. I think, you know, what happened is in July, we've had a classic bear market setup here. You, I can give you five or six of the last ones. You have a break that's hard, pretty hard, like the first six months. Then you get a rally. And these rallies go anywhere from 10 to 18, 19, 20% sometimes. But then after that, you that's when you roll over in the damage. It doesn't come as a crash. It just starts working its way lower over a two, three, four quarter period. And I think that's where we are. And so what happens in the midst of that, when you have that rally, is people are still hanging on. I mean, I've, I've watched them and heard too many of them. It was just Wall Street Journal article a few days ago about people that had a certain amount of money and what they were thinking. And the market had heard them, but every one of them was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm holding on because I really think we'll, we'll turn it around here and we'll come back. So you have to get to a point in the lows in the market where people are just disgusted. They're like, don't show me any, don't show me anything. 
I'm, I'm certain it'll be the same way with crypto too. But when you get to the point, it's like, I don't want to deal with that anymore. You know, I've already lost that. I'm a sellout. And we really haven't gotten that. Oddly enough, they had actually added money in a number of cases. And so they're still in that mode. And so this, what happens is you have to keep going forward to you roll to lower lows. And then you just start to work on people's site. And they, it's one of the things where I wish I'd sold, I wish I'd sold, but I'm not going to. And then at the very low, they're like, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> so we sell out. Unfortunately, that's the way it goes. And so I suspect this will be the same. All right. Um, I, I know you and I have talked in the past of how in, in the investing landscape, it's often our own emotions that are our worst enemies mm-hmm. in, in the situation. I see you nodding as I'm saying this. Um, so this is a big reason why I wanted to have you back on here. Ted was because you are somebody who's seen a number of cycles and sounds like you're saying this one's sort of playing out kind of, you know, stereotypically. Um, and, uh, you know, the job of the bear market, they say, is to take as, as much money from as many people as possible. And those rallies that happen within the larger bear market, you know, they're designed to basically get anybody who still has any optimism left to come back into the market and then pull the rug out from under them and take their capital too. So it sounds like you've said, um, look, n- nobody knows exactly what the future's, uh, how it's going to unfold, but based upon what you've seen historically, it sounds like what I'm hearing from you is, is you expect the market to, you know, reverse from here, uh, continue to go down over the a series of quarters, somewhere maybe from two to four or so, um, to that point of capitulation where people are just you know, sitting on losses that are so great that they just finally give up that last shred of hope that things are going to reverse and then they liquidate. And then usually not too long after that, the bottom is in and things start going back up. Well, that's true. Uh, you know, I think you have to look at too, this was, we were coming off of the, the biggest bubble I've ever seen in everything. I mean, real estate, private companies, stocks, bonds, you know, crypto, Everything, art, everything was in bubble territory, big bubble territory. And that's what happens uh, to this sort of thing. And I think people, you know, we, again, I always come back to this, but this last 12 years has been a, for a whole group of people, has been an easy run for them because you haven't really had a, what I call a, a classic bear market. So they don't know how to act and they don't know how to act with inflation either because they've never seen it. And it's interesting uh, when we look at a lot of portfolios that somebody might have us take a look at, I can tell by looking at the portfolio, it's business as usual. 95% invested, you know, just give me some foreign and this and that and the other. And then, but, you know, that's not what will weather this storm. And I think that's the, that you have to get to that point where people finally figure out that, hey, uh, you know, I can't take it anymore. And I, I think that's what will come eventually. Okay. Yeah. And you raise a really important point there. I think it's just worth emphasizing for folks um, is that uh, you hate to use the word sort of it's different this time, but we we are seeing some some big sort of secular shifts here, right? So inflation. Um, There aren't that many investors alive today who were actively investing during the last inflationary era, right? They, they, They just we've we've had what since the 80s you know we've we've had so what 40 plus years of kind of disinflation right, right. um and so just the musculature that uh, both individual investors but just the the financial system has developed are all about how to invest 
with kind of a tailwind at your back. Now they've got a big headwind and they just, they, they don't have a playbook for this and they, they don't have any experience for this. So in many ways, kind of everybody is grasping in the dark here in this new era. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it just, it, it, for me, for the investor, it really underscores a, get yourself a guide who's got some experience in that era, either having lived through it or, or been a big student of it. Um, and two, it suggests that the people who are running our system are probably even more out of their depth than they are normally. And we should expect, we shouldn't expect great decisions from them. Well, I, I think what happens in, in my first, uh, really, seven and eight years in the business was inflation. And so what, what people don't realize in inflation is it not only affects, it affects the bond market, but it affects the stock market as well. The reason being is because companies get cheaper, the multiples get cheaper. And, you know, you know, you'll sit around the last 10 or 12 years and think, well, you know, that 16 multiples about right for the S&P. Well, not during inflation. You, you, you keep pushing that down to 10 or maybe a single digit because companies can't quickly adjust. That's where small companies start to outperform because big companies can't adjust rapidly to inflation. So you have a two-pronged thing when you're an investor, I have to realize that I, gotta, I have to be careful with my bonds and I have to be careful with my stocks. And you can't just go out and buy a, a fund or an ETF because they're going to own paper that you may not even know anything about. And so it changes the whole landscape quite a bit. And I, I think that's what will separate people the next five to 10 years. All right. Well, so your job is managing capital for your clients. Um, what, are, what are some of the strategies that you're adopting now, given we are in an inflationary world here? Like what, what goes into your criteria as you assess where to park capital right now? Well, you know, uh, we have three strategies. We have one that's really a super conservative income. It's really just bulletproof type of bonds. We have a middle strategy that's called a high income strategy. And then we have a stock strategy. And the stock strategy, we're about 51 or 52% liquid generally. We have it in treasuries, but we just don't have anything we want to own other than about half the portfolio. The, what we're finding that we want to own during these periods, though, are things that can pay no matter what. For example, uh, you'll find us own, owning oil and oil and gas pipelines. You'll find us owning undervalued, like medical real estate, that kind of thing. You'll see us on uh, the preferreds. You know, a lot of the big preferreds are now six and a quarter, six and a half, and that's better than a bond. That's better than a corporate bond, and 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 it, and it will trade pretty much like that. So we, we own some of that on a ton of short paper. I'm talking about from six months treasuries to maybe 18 to 24 months net spread. Um, and yes, it's not paying us inflation rate, but it's a good place to park it till you decide what you want to do. It's maybe, maybe our average there is three and a quarter, something along that line. And, uh, so there's, and we own gold and we own the miners. Miners are really cheap right now. New, Newmont's a 5% dividend right now. Um, and, you know, if you look at Franco Nevada, Agnico Eagle, those are companies that you can put in a portfolio now and they're fear type stocks. So what happens is the worse things get, the better they'll do. And, um, and so if you package all that together, you've got to have, You've got to have things that can, you know, will give you some movement, some pricing uh, when things go bad. But the biggest thing is liquidity. 
And I find that uh, on when you're in this type of situation, you want to really measure your liquidity and keep it. Don't get sucked in. You know, like like things will go lower and think, well, I've been waiting on that. I'll buy it. And then you look up, you know, four months later and it's 15% cheaper. So right. you have to keep that in mind in here. So that's kind of where, what we do. That's how we run it. So, uh, you know, nobody can pick the bottom, you know, with certainty, with anything else really but luck. But what 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 will be the indicators you'll be looking at to say, and these might not come for quarters, but to to start saying, okay, now it, we, we believe that enough of the downside risk has been flushed out that we're comfortable to begin putting capital back into the market. Well, if you look at adjusted S&P earnings, you know, the street right now is still thinking eight to 10% up or a lot of them are. I mean, isn't that crazy? Uh, we, don't, we don't know where they're coming from, but that's, you know, that's where they want to go with it. And for us, we're going to have to see on adjusted earnings, not, not earnings now, but adjusted earnings. We want to see that multiple somewhere between 12 and 15 uh, to get a really, what I consider to be really, really great buys. And it all, it all comes together too, at the same time. I mean, you'll have, you know, the price is falling, the, you know, the multiples fall, everything falls into place eventually. But people have to remember too, usually in a bear market, the last, really the last 25% comes really quickly. I mean, it's like within a, a month or two. Uh, not that it's happening right now, but I'm just saying that's what we, we look for a number of things like that. Okay. Um, and so just to repeat that, from your experience, uh, the value loss of a bear market is kind of gradual and then psh, you know, the last 25% is kind of right there at the end. Usually it comes quickly. You know, you'll, you just, you, what you do is you wear people out and when you wear them out and there, maybe there's some event outside or some news or something really finishes it. But again, I think that's quite a, quite a ways into the future. Um, right. I don't think it's any time in the, third quarter but um but over the next three or four quarters i think you you see something like that. i think it'll be a great opportunity by the way so i'm not so negative yeah but yeah. these bear markets will give you a really great place but capital work um so i don't look at them as negative if you've got liquidity you can really make it work yeah and and look at it at a high level i don't want to put words in your mouth but um they're also not negative in the sense is that they're taking off a lot of the excess that's been in the market um, and they're just making the markets more resilient, maybe even a little bit more fair in terms of pricing. Um, so, yes, there's a lot of human cost that comes along with that I don't want to minimize, but but as a society, they help us hopefully get to a better place where at least a good chunk of the malinvestment's been been cleared from the system. So, <clears throat> It sounds like what you're saying, Ted, is that a bear market really does sort of reward um, conservatism and patience, right? So you're basically saying, look, you know, be liquid, be defensively positioned and things that give you, you know, maybe a smaller return, but but a return and, and one that's maybe as risk, low risk as possible, you know, if you're certainly in short term treasuries and stuff like that. Um, but that patience will pay off. And it sounds like even, you know, let, let's assuming it plays out like it always does, you know, patience gets you at, at a minimum that that 25% boost <laughs> that you get at the end there, right? If you just wait that out, everything's 25% on sale for you, right? Well, you know, what happens with people is they they tend to 
consider everything that's gone on in the last two or three years and they put it in that perspective. They can't remember. Uh, see, I, I remember all those periods in time where you go through them. And, you know, I remember, uh, you know, August of 87 and how expensive things got. And I remember, uh, you know, 90, 97 to 2000 and how th expensive things got. How many went out of business? And uh, see, we, we, we've not gotten to that point yet. They're still all sort of hanging on and getting financed, all sorts of things. But eventually, eventually, um, it all some, comes down on itself. And we, again, we're coming off the biggest bubble ever. So it's not unusual. Yeah. And, you know, when I look at dominoes to fall ahead of us, there, there are a lot. And we can look on the geopolitical side of things and and. There's a lot of really big ones there. We can look at the energy situation. Gosh, there's a lot of big challenges there, especially in places like Europe. Um, but even just you know here domestically, we a if you look at uh, the consumer credit in, you know, data, it shows that um, people were at record record levels of revolving credit, you know, like credit cards before the pandemic. The stimulus checks went out. People actually paid down a fair amount of that debt, but but we have since reversed course and we're now back at record highs, growing at record levels month after month at this point. So basically, what that suggests is, is you know, a lot of people have burned through the stimulus, um, it, but they're continuing to live the lifestyle that they had as best they can. They're just putting it all on the plastic at this point in time, and you can only do that up to a certain level, right? Where you get to a point where either you can't take on any more debt because you can't service the extra debt or because your creditors just cut you off and say, you know, we're not giving you any more, right? So you, you have that risk. Um, and of course, consumer spending is what, like almost two thirds of, of GDP. Uh -huh. um, you and I were just talking about the, the challenges that are compressing um, profits at corporations. Uh, at some point, they get compressed so much that companies have to start laying people off. Uh, and of course, if, if if the economy is slowing, as we said it is, you know, you can tip into recession. Well, that gets made a lot worse if companies start firing people, uh, firing people, laying them off, and then those consumers don't have any more income to spend, and it kind of becomes this vicious circle for a while. Um, how how concerned are you about how much of that is still lying ahead of us? So I'm I'm going to guess maybe you think the majority of it is. If you think we still have quarters to go before this is over. Well, you know, it's one of the things where it's, it's it's an unusual time right now where you have, you know, low unemployment. You basically have had, you know, two quarters of down GDP, and yet the Fed is continuing. And now they're even coming out and getting, say, we'll get more aggressive and that sort of thing. So it's all going to come into a point there to where, you know, they they basically kill it. And when when they do, that's when you'll start to see, you know, you're going to see, you know, labor. Labor is always the last thing. I mean, yeah. if you have a company of great employees, you don't want to let them go because you may not be able to get them back, number one. But number two, they're great employees. They're hard to find. So they're the last thing that people do. They'll go a long time before they start laying people off. However, we've seen a few signs of that in the last two or three weeks that there's a little bit of that starting to come into play in certain companies. So it, it will be there. We just think it is one of those things that will be gradual over time. And maybe that's what would cause the Fed to change. Probably would if all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden unemployment really starts to rise. So we'll just have to wait to see how it plays out. All right. Now, um, in, in past uh, 
cycles of history of, of, of hiking cycles. Um, and you're a better student of this than I, so feel free to correct anything I say here if it's if it's not right. But is that um, you know there's there's a delay between uh, the Fed pulling a lever and and seeing the results of that manifest in the real world, and that delay, you know, on average, I've heard people say is kind of a roundish nine months or so, and you know, people can argue on exactly when it happens, but but it seems to be that sort of the general delay timing. And so when, um, going back to the 70s, at times we, we had several sort of Fed pivots there, right? Where they would tighten and then realize they they broke something and then they would ease and then inflation would come back and then they'd have to tighten again, right? Um, but you can, when the Fed realizes that it's it, it needs to reverse course and it, it switches from one side to the other. So in our case, it switches from tightening back to easing. Um, you know, historically, you've still seen the market decline for for months, maybe even a few quarters after that initial Fed reversal. Like it doesn't, it doesn't just bring the economy magic magically back to life right after that. You still have a lot of the whatever the breakage was that the tightening did still has has to work its way through the system. And so, what I'm just trying to say here is, is we may get a Fed pivot, say in Q1 of next year, but we could still see the markets deteriorating and the economic situation deteriorating and layoffs increasing and whatnot through the initial quarter or two of the Fed's new easing. Do, do you agree? Well, it's happened numerous times where the Fed, by the time they get around to lowering rates, you know, the markets are going on down because, see, they've already pressed it into a decline from an economic decline standpoint. So, you know, they're behind. And they remind me so much, a little bit, really, of the 70s. See, we had high inflation coming out of the late 60s, war, et cetera. And so what happened is when they hit their first batch of inflation in the early 70s, then they raised the rates, they lowered the rates, they raised the rates, and then they got behind. And so when they got behind, they couldn't do anything. They didn't do anything about it, I should say, until Volcker came in. But the difference between Volcker then and now is the level of debt now is so much, so right. much higher. And... I think that's what people don't realize is that's what's going to really, you know, squeeze it down. And and the government debt levels. Just think about Social Security in twenty three. Uh, you know, Social Security payments going to have to go up seven and a half eight percent. That's a lot of money. And so money. all of a sudden you got this thing going on. And so we'll see how it comes out. But I think for the average people, they have to realize that in inflationary periods of the market. You have to be more nimble than you are. It's not one of those things where you just buy and hold and forget everything because I can give you 20 stocks, big names. You'll all know them, Sears, a whole group, 1966 and 1983, same price, no splits, GM, the whole group. And when that, what that means is, is that the way you had to make money was knowing where to be and when to be there. And that's different from what people have been taught the last 15 years. So I just did a uh, an interview uh, with Sven Henrik. Um, he's a big technical analyst. I'll put up a link to it here. Mm -hmm. And Sven echoed very much what you just said there, uh, Ted. And he said, um, he said, in this type of market, you can't be a perma bull. You can't be a perma bear. Uh, you have to be perma flexible, right? And uh, very much echoed what you said in in, in I'm not saying you say exactly the same thing, but but he sees a a decent probability that the next year or more really could just be a bunch of chop, 
right? Not necessarily a massive crash, um, but just, just, you know, ping pong back and forth from highs and lows. Um, but what both he and you are saying here is, uh, you know, since the global financial crisis with all the market intervention and whatnot, it's, it's been a pretty steady escalator ride up, you know, 45 degree, you know, market pretty much makes new highs year after year. <laughs> Easy, right? Low volatility, high confidence of, of higher return next year. Uh, is very, very easy. Uh, so you could have sort of a, a set it and forget it type of strategy. Um, what I hear from you guys saying is, is highly likely not going to be the case going forward. And um, and even in CHOP, you have to be careful going back to the investors' emotions being their own worst enemies. We tend to panic sell when when things go down, and we tend to, to buy when things get richly priced because we think it's going a lot higher. And so you kind of end up in that chop of, of buying high and selling low, which is, of course, is the opposite of what you want to do. Um, and these are all reasons why I think you know working with a, 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 a great experienced financial advisory firm like yours is so important. Um, so you can sort of leverage the expertise and the emotional detachment that a, a good financial advisor can bring to you in this type of environment. So um, I, this is probably a big fat softball for you, but I mean, I assume active management takes a much more heightened importance in the type of environment that we see ahead here. Well, I'll give you an example. If you look, because when I got in the business in, in 75 and 76, it was, we had between that time and the time rates really turned, which was the Henry Kaufman deal in August of 82. He was, you know, Mr. Money at the time. But in that seven-year period, we had five years that the Dow was between 1,000 and 750. On the up and down, okay. Pretty big swings, so yeah. So you, you people in that mode right there. I remember it really, really well. By the time you got to the eighty-two finish low, which was, you know, earlier in the year, it wasn't in August was when we turned. But when you got to that period, that's eighty, eighty-one, that sort of thing. People just you were at single-digit multiple, and people didn't want to didn't want to own anything. Well, what did do it ushered in you know one of the great bull markets ever. Um, so there'll be, there'll be really some, some great spots, I think, for people to, to do well. Um, but I don't think they can overstay the party sometimes. And that'll, what, that's what they'll have to get used to. Okay. Um, so I've got a, a topic I'm, I'm interested to get to you with in a few minutes here about, um, you know, how people can, can not only create wealth, but but keep the wealth that they create. Um, and, and I know you've written a number of books uh, on this topic here. Um, but in an environment like this, um, it, it was sort of easy to make returns over the past decade, as I said, right? Because you had all these massive tailwinds, you know, at your back. Um, you had the whole system, including the central banks, kind of working hard to try to make you richer next year if you had financial assets. Um, in a much more uncertain environment like this, um, or bear market, where it's, let's say it's sort of like a hurricane where you kind of want to batten down, you don't want to be aggressive in terms of deploying your capital. Um, it seems to me you really want to focus on, uh, you know, two other muscles. You know, one is generating income, which can be tough in a recession, but that's something that's much more directly in our control as individuals. Okay, how much, in, how much income can I generate? And then the second is the the saving element of that is how how much of that income can I get into my investment portfolio, even if we're keeping it in highly liquid assets, 
but that's that that might be the right focus for many individual investors right now. And then when the storm is over and the clouds start parting and you know we start seeing some of these great values, you know, then the investing, the the, the deploying part, you know, begins to come into play. What, what do you think about all that? Well, I think the deployment right now is more important because what most of them probably are overly exposed to equity because they have been the last 10 years. And I'm not saying they are, but my guess is a lot of them are. Uh, and they're really, and they're, and they're off from the, you know, obviously from the beginning of the year. And I think that their mantra sort of is, well, but it'll be okay. We're going to come back next year and it's, things are fine. I don't, wouldn't look at that for those people. I would, first of all, concentrate on, on what they have and, and deploying that in probably a safer way. And then on the saving side of it and what they put, I wouldn't necessarily put it into the market. I just put it into maybe in an account. Right. I would have it be safe, you know, for the time being to just wait it out and see where all this ends. Okay. Yeah. Great answer. So first off is look at how you're currently deployed. If you're too aggressively deployed, mm. re, you know, rebalance, get, get to a, a smarter, more conservative stance, and then focus on just getting as much of your income into building cash per right now and have it there just waiting, as we talked about, you know, patients really paying off here, waiting for a better environment ahead. Excellent. All right. Well, now I, I want to pivot to what I hope will be the second, the focus of the second half of this conversation, Ted. I've been really excited to be able to talk about this with you. Uh, is you work with high net worth families? That's your focus, and um, you have a really good sort of front row seat to uh, how these people have become very successful wealth creators in their lives, and then how they have passed that uh, on to pass those values on to their children so that their children take that wealth and grow it for the family and the progeny for hopefully generations going forward, as opposed to just spending it all out. So if you could just kind of tell us, uh, what have you seen as being some of the, the most important things to keep in mind for families who are working to build wealth, to be able to have that sustained for the generations ahead? Let me say this, I, you know, I've looked at uh, major wealth for four decades or more. And interesting enough, a lot of that hasn't changed after they made a lot of money. One of the things that's happened that's different, though, the last seven or eight years is a lot of these families got paid so much for these companies that it was so much higher than it would have normally been. So there's a lot of money was created for families. And I have to say, uh, I don't have all the answers, but I have a, a lot of experience in watching. And you well, I always break those down into two categories. You have the a category of the business owning family that sold a company and made a lot of money, you know, let's say 25 to 250 million or higher. Then you have a whole group of people that I put in the second category that the prior generation was the one that had the money. So you're in the second, third, and fourth generation, and they've got an entirely different set of problems. But the first one, where they make the money in this generation. And this is what I see with, with people and their children. And that is they want, if you ask them what they want, they would say, I want my children to be you know, good stewards of money. I wanna be responsible in the community. I wanna be philanthropic. They want all these things for them. And then the way they go about it is just give them a lot, some of them do, just give them a lot of money. Well, it doesn't work that way. 
one of the things you have to do and realize if you have a lot of money and you've got to really press this because it's hard, hard, very hard for you to do as a first generation wealth. You probably, when you made a lot of money in that company, grew up without a lot, probably had some tough times. You had to pay the bills. Sometimes you had to get payroll, whatever. And you instinctively don't want that to happen to your children, which is the reverse of what you ought to be doing. You need to be able, why do you, why do you think eagles kick the babies to the curb? I mean, it, there's a reason for it, okay? And that is you want them, in order for you to get what you want for that child, you're going to have to do some things that are contra to your feelings. And that is you're going to have to say, okay, look, you're going to have to go out and get a job. Not only, you know, you're not going to be traveling around backpacking Europe every summer. You're going to get a job, okay? And when you get out of college, you're going to get a job. I'm not going to help you, okay? I'll, I'll do the college, okay? But you got to get a job. And the money part of it is not yet. It's too early. And I don't agree with these people, by the way, that bring these um, 16 and 18-year-old kids in to the money manager and say, this is what it's all about because that's really not what it's all about. What it's all about is teaching that child some self-esteem that I can do it. I can do it on my own. I didn't need my mom and dad. Okay, I did it on my own. And then later on, when they're older, when you do put the wealth to them, they really appreciate it then because they understand now what happened. But I also see this whole set of people that they think, well, I'll just make it easy for them. And make you're not making it easy for them. Those kids that you give all that money to will spend the rest of their life trying to show you and the whole community that they're smart too, that they can make money too. But you know what they do? They make tons of errors because they didn't go about it the right way. And they, they're just trying so hard to be purposeful. They're trying to really say, okay, I can, I can do it. I'm going to show my parents I can do it too when they make tons of errors. That's what I see out there, and I think people need to realize that you have to impart a different set of things for kids if you really want them to be what you want, okay? And it's hard to do, by the way, but I've done it myself, but it's not, I learned a lot from a lot of other people, by the way, and it wasn't something I dreamed up, but and then you've got to, again, you've got a whole different set of problems for the second through the fourth generation. Um, they're in a different mode, but they, 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 they also have problems. And unfortunately, they, they chase a lot of rainbows uh, because they haven't had the experience of actually you know, building a business and knowing what's happening. They got the money, don't get me wrong. Um, but I call it the um, cocktail party information. They start exchanging information about my manager did this and I've got one in Connecticut. I think I'll go to him. Well, I'm one in LA, I'll go out there. Well. You know, you got to know more than that. And so that's that's the way these things happen. Hopefully that's not too long an answer for you, but that's the way I see it. No, it's it's a great answer. And it, it, it jumps into exactly where I wanted to go here, which is, um, look, you work with generally with your firm, your specialty is, is high net worth individuals. Like you said, um, you know, oftentimes clients that ran a business for many years, sold it and are now wrestling with the decision of, okay, kind of my, my daily purpose in life, you know, just went away. I just sold it to somebody and I'm sitting on all this money. Uh, a, what do I do with my life going forward? But also how do I pass that money along after I'm gone that it continues to benefit my family for generations as opposed to just getting spent by my kids, right? 
And uh, you and I have talked a lot about this in the in the past that it, it seems like without good guidance, the kids generally spend it, not necessarily because they're 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 wasteful, um, but they just haven't developed the musculature that made the initial first generation wealth builder successful at what they were doing. Um, so anyways, I, I think this is so fascinating to talk about because I think the principles apply to any family, really, no matter what your net worth is, right? If you if you want your children to be financially savvy, to have a chance of, of, of making their own wealth, but, but also to the extent you have wealth to transition to them, to be good stewards of that and, and keep that going forward, I think the tenants are still largely the same. And, you know, what you talked about right there at the beginning of your answer, Ted, of, of uh, the eagle kicking, you know, it's young out of the nest, so they learn how to fly. Um, it, it's, it is this struggle, you know, that, that we, I, I, I interviewed the um, uh, Bill Danko, who was one of the co-authors of the book, The Millionaire Next Door, right, which was yeah. basically a scientific study of self-made millionaires to find out, you know, what, what made them uh, successful. And uh, and what that study found, too, is that most millionaire wealth, self-made wealth is lost by the end of the second generation. And, and it's because the entrepreneurs protected their children from the adversity and the struggle that the initial entrepreneur had to go through. They just thought, oh, it was a tough life. I don't want my kids to have to claw like I did. But it's that clawing through adversity that actually is what makes you a successful steward of money because you realize what it takes to earn it, you you, you really you, you realize okay, there's there's actually principles and tenets uh, and a lot of hard work that goes into this. Um, uh, but like you said, you know they 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 learn the rules of the road. They don't get diverted by the siren song of the guy at the country club who's got a hot tip, right? Um, so it, it's a hard thing for a parent to set your kids up to push them into adversity and to watch from the sidelines as they struggle through it. But if you kind of look at it from a, hey, if I'm doing this out of love because I want you to actually be able to stand on your own two feet and to be your own, you know, wealth creator and and wealth uh, steward, um, it may be one of the most loving things you could do for them. Well, it is the most loving thing you can do for them because what happens is. Our interview with Ted will continue over in part two, which will be released on this channel tomorrow as soon as we're finished editing it. To be notified when it comes out, subscribe to this channel if you haven't already by clicking on the subscribe button below as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And be sure to hit the like button too while you're down there. Remember, we're continuing our new practice of publishing my top takeaways from these weekly interviews. To get mine from this interview with Ted for free, just go to Wealthion.com slash Adam's Notes. And finally, if the challenging macro outlook Ted has detailed in this interview has you feeling a little vulnerable about the prospects for your wealth, then consider scheduling a free, no-strings-attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your wealth, keeping in mind the trends and risks that Ted has mentioned here. Just go to Wealthion.com and we'll help set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you next in part two of our interview with Ted Oakley.